Once upon a time, there was a cowboy who applied for health insurance. In the process of securing his premium, the agent asked him, have you ever had any accidents? The cowboy replied, well, no. I've not had any accidents. I was bitten by a rattlesnake once, and a horse did kick me in the ribs. That laid me up for a while, but I haven't had any accidents. And the agent said, well, wait a minute. I'm confused. A rattlesnake bit you and, and a horse kicked you. Weren't those accidents? No, said the cowboy. They did that on purpose. As regards our text for this morning, we can say that the death of John the Baptist was no accident. Herod killed him on purpose. But that's not the only or real reason we know that John's death was not an accident. The real reason is God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is one of those church words, one of those big words, one of those theological words. It gets tossed around a good deal. But what does it mean? Tony Evans says sovereignty means there's no such thing as luck. Anything that happens to you, good or bad, must pass through his fingers first. There are no accidents with God. English Bible teacher from the last century, A.W. Pink, wrote, Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. Here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. And so our call to worship says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, over all even the execution of his faithful servant. Now, I'm not sure how this story struck you as you were reading it this week, but for me, the account of John the Baptist's death seemed even more startling after reading about the amazing circumstances surrounding his birth just a few weeks ago. What a marvelous story Luke tells about the birth of John the Baptist. He was the answer to a prayer long abandoned. His mother, Elizabeth, and his father, Zechariah, both wanted a child, but they could not conceive. They were righteous and they were devout. Luke is careful to tell us their childlessness was not a result of anything that they had done wrong, not a curse, not a punishment. Turns out it was, as the story unfolds, part of a larger miraculous plan of our sovereign God. When Elizabeth and Zechariah were advanced in years, which is a nice way of saying too old to have kids, Zechariah was performing his job in the temple, serving as priest before God. I'm going to read to you now from Luke chapter 1, verses 10 to 25. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, 
and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. Among people. Elizabeth was barren, the record says, but then God decided she was not. And she became pregnant at exactly the right time for exactly the reason God had in mind. The birth and the purpose of John the Baptist is similar to that of the prophet Jeremiah, of whom God spoke, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before God formed John in the womb, he knew him, and he set him apart, and gave him the office of prophet, and the unique privilege to be the one who would grow up and go before Jesus and prepare the way of the Lord. And that is exactly what he did, becoming a strong preacher, the forerunner of the Christ. And in the process, John attracted his own following. Matthew tells us, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. He drew large crowds. He drew diverse crowds. And he baptized many for the forgiveness of sins. And yet, as popular as he was, John the Baptist was not the headliner. He was the opening act. And he was okay with that. Because when Jesus came on the scene, he used his influence to point people to him, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was not at all concerned about his status or public esteem. It was he who famously said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, knew better than anyone, my life is not about me, my life is about him. I have a job, and it is to point people to Jesus. It is to point people to the truth. John was faithful to his purpose. He was committed to his calling, which meant that on occasion he would say things that caused people to gasp in unbelief. Today we would say that he was politically incorrect. But here's the thing, John the Baptist wasn't political at all. He stands in obvious contrast to Herod, 
John lives to do and to say what is right, what is pleasing to God. Herod lives to do and say what is expedient, what is pleasing to his wife or his colleagues and thus to himself. When John told Herod it wasn't lawful for him to have his brother's wife, which is exactly what the scriptures say, it cost him his freedom. He was arrested, he was bound, and he was put in prison. It's not that Herod really wanted to put John in jail. He liked him, and he liked listening to him. But his wife hated John for condemning their marriage. And probably more than that, or related to that, for the righteousness of God that shone through him. Genuine godliness has a way of making those who do not know God very angry. Sometimes angry enough to kill. We see this in the story of John the Baptist. And then in the story of Stephen, the Christian church's first martyr. And later in the story of Paul and then Peter. And all the disciples except John and Judas who did himself in. And before that, in the story of Isaiah, whom tradition says was cut in half. And then the prophet Zechariah. And after that, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, believers who because of their faith were tortured, who suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment, who were stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword, forced to wander, dressed in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, living in dens and caves. One of the obvious takeaways from today's text and this small sample of other examples is that following God and doing His will does not always lead to a pretty outcome, at least not in worldly human terms. The reward for faithful living is not always a long or trouble-free life. The God who is able to deliver and often has and often does, doesn't always, nor is He obligated to. We cannot presume on him to shut the mouth of every lion or quench the flames of every fire to heal every disease or open the gates of every prison. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He may very well write a different ending than we would to our story, to the stories of our loved ones and our friends. And it is his prerogative to do so. In the book of James, we are warned about the presumption of taking tomorrow for granted. We are reminded that the one who gave us this life has every right to take it, whenever and however he pleases. It is, after all, his and not ours. I need to remember that. Because when I think of John the Baptist and I take into account his beautiful and miraculous birth, his holy living, his lion's heart for speaking the truth, his faithful discharge of the task given to him by God, his steadfast commitment to the word, I think, doesn't someone like that deserve to live to be a hundred and die peacefully in his sleep? Really, God? Your prophet dies because of the careless oath of a power-drunk king? and the vindictive plot of his illegitimate wife? Well, no, not really. John the Baptist died because, well, be, 
because it is appointed unto man once to die. We're all going to die. So that part of it was inevitable. But mostly John the Baptist died because it was the sovereign will of God for him to die. It was his time. To be honest, I don't like the way the story ends. Whenever I'm reading the Bible and I find myself not liking something God has ordained, something he has done or not done, something that he has allowed or failed to prevent, then I know the problem has to be with me, right? The issue is not God. God is perfect. The issue is the way I'm seeing things. It's my imperfect understanding. So this account for me raises some big issues which if they can be squared away biblically, lead me to a greater appreciation for God's sovereignty. Let me offer two questions and answers that this text has led me to ponder. The first is this. What is the purpose of life? What are we here for? I just finished conducting a graveside service for a distant relative when another, an aging gentleman, approached me in the cemetery. Scott, he said, when it's my time, I want you to do my service. And then he smiled and said, but there's no hurry. Most everyone, except maybe those who are suffering greatly, can relate to this man. We're not in a hurry to leave this world. Not in any hurry to die. Some would even argue that we are wired to survive. Maybe so, but to what end? If we don't want to stop living, then what are we living for? What is our purpose? Well, like John the Baptist, our purpose here is to glorify God by being faithful to the work we were born to do. We live for Him, and we live at His pleasure because He wills us too. This life is not first about us and what we want. It is about God and what He wants. And so with that in mind, the goal is not to stay alive as long as we can. It's to be faithful as long as we're alive. As believers, we want to be much more concerned with the completion of our God-given tasks in this world than the timing or means of our inevitable exit. Let it be our determination at the end of things to have finished what we were born to do and be found by the Lord to have been faithful. We are here to bring glory to God. A second question is from what perspective are you looking at life? Perspective is important when it comes to stories like the seemingly tragic death of John the Baptist or the suffering of the righteous or even suffering in general. And I'm going to suggest there's a perspective we don't have and a perspective that we can and ought to have. The perspective we don't have is the perspective that God has at any given moment. And I'm sure you have noticed, if you have any time and grade whatsoever in this faith journey of Christianity, you understand that God doesn't always make his views known to us in the moment. God doesn't always answer the why questions. As Matt Chandler put it, God is better at declaring than explaining. He alone has the big picture, the bird's eye view of everything all the time. So Vernon McGee writes, this is God's universe and God does things his way. 
You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You have neither the responsibilities for nor the proper viewpoint of all events in the universe. Will you trust then your interpretation of the tiny sliver you get to see and use it to inform your conclusions about everything else? Or will you trust the all-encompassing wisdom and goodness of the one who sees it all and doesn't miss a thing? To do the former, all you need to do is trust yourself. To do the latter requires faith. At its core, the call of Christianity is a call to faith, which is putting our trust in, believing in what is not seen on the promise that one day the faith we place in God will become sight and our choice to trust him will be proven right. And so David prays in faith, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And the wisdom of Proverbs 3 encourages us to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not to do what comes so natural, to lean on our own understanding. So we cannot see everything as God sees it in real time. We don't have that perspective. But the perspective of God that we can have is that which is revealed in his word. And the Bible clearly teaches ideas like this. Persecution for the faith is normal and is to be expected. So Peter wrote, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And John wrote, do not marvel that the world hates you. The Bible teaches that trials and suffering are evidence that God is at work in us. God is transforming us through hardship. He's conforming us to the image of his son. The Bible teaches that it is an honor to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible teaches that to be mistreated, mistreated for God's sake is a blessing. Jesus says so in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Bible teaches that no matter how difficult or agonizing we can be assured that any and all suffering, hardship, injustice, and mistreatment that we endure in this world is temporary. Even if it ends in physical death, there is a limit here. There is an end. And with that, we've come full circle to the story of John the Baptist. Of his seemingly unfortunate death, his apparently pointless demise of the life of a great man of God cut short. But is it possible for anyone to die prematurely when all the days ordained for him were written in God's book ahead of time? Is it possible that the death of a dear one could be untimely in the context of a world governed by a sovereign God? And here's something even more important to bear in mind, the end of the account of John the Baptist's life, the laying of his body in a tomb, is indeed not the end 
of the story. Is not the beheading of John the Baptist the homecoming of John the Baptist? Is it not the death of John the Baptist that ushers his soul into the eternal loving presence of God? We may read the story in its cruel conclusion and say, that's horrible, that's tragic. Yes, but horrible and tragic for who? Heaven is no less heavenly for the child whose eyes never saw the light of day than for the 95-year-old saint whose eyes had seen it all. For the faithful servant run through for preaching truth or the thief on the cross who with a last gasp believes. In all, a good and sovereign God calls to himself those he loves when and how he sees fit and gives them eternal life. And so we can sing with the hymn writer. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad.